We covered together the majority of Acts chapter 2 last week. We bit off a big section because that's how God's Spirit left it for us. In other words, that was one big story. And as we work together through the book of Acts, we're going to do our best to pay attention to the form in which it was written. These truths were written down for us in story form. They were real events, and so we go back and look at what God did and how His people responded. Stories are powerful, especially true stories like these that we have before us in the book of Acts. They are powerful for they show what God did, how that affected the people that followed Him, and then considering the implications that these effects have upon us is incredibly important for our faith and the way that we worship God together. So we started last week at the beginning of chapter 2 by talking about this idea that hope was dawning. We saw in chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago that Jesus took a lot of time with his disciples after his resurrection and before his ascension to talk to them about the kingdom. We saw in their response to Jesus as he was ascending to go back to be with the Father that they still had some misunderstanding as to what the kingdom was. Part of this was due to their ignorance. Part of this was due to problems within their own hearts. Their ignorance was due to the fact that They thought that kingdom had to be something that was always physical and literal. The problem in their hearts was due to the fact that they wanted to be vindicated for whom they had followed and what they had given up. Jesus assured the disciples through his angels that came to them after his ascension that he would come back, suggesting that literal kingdom was coming that vindication for the righteous followers of Jesus was coming, but that there would be an interval, a long, drawn-out interval, as we have come to find, in which we still find ourselves today. The kingdom is here because we are here. That is to say... The kingdom of God is that Jesus is reigning now. The one who is the second person of the Trinity, who is also the Savior of mankind, is reigning in us and through us and is extending His reign, His rule among all peoples on the planet. He's not doing that politically, and that's difficult for us in this day and age. He is not doing this militarily, but he is doing it through individuals as he overcomes the curse of sin, its penalty removed, no more condemnation, its power vanquished, no more slavery to sin. 
And he extends to us the promise that one day he indeed will return and remove even sin's presence so that we will no longer be tempted by it. And we will worship him in perfection and his rule will extend from north to south and from east to west. And then politically and militarily and in every other way, Jesus will be in charge. There will be total peace and harmony. The dawn of hope we are experiencing now, which promises us that one day the full noon blaze of sun will come and his power and his rule will extend over all the earth. But in this day and age, we are dealing with the foretaste of that, the appetizer of that. And as we read through the book of Acts, we will learn increasingly what it looks like for us to live under the reign, the rule of the King and Savior of the universe. And while we wait for Him to return, we can rest in Him, we can know Him, we can enjoy Him, and by His grace and the power of His Spirit, which was given to the apostles on the day of Pentecost, we can extend His rule and reign over all the earth. This is our privilege, and this is our responsibility. And so we find together in the book of Acts not only what the first church experienced, but what we ourselves are to expect and to experience. And in this, we can take great hope. And so we will talk today, as we explore the end of Acts chapter 2, about this dawn of hope. And today, we will see the effects that it had on the early church And I think that this holds profound implications for the way that we should respond to Jesus as a church. So let's read together Acts chapter 2 from verse 42 down through verse 47. And let us prayerfully and humbly approach God's word today, expecting that he will teach us and change us. This is the word of the Lord. And they, these early converts that we find In our section from last week, these 3,000 souls, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May God bless to us the reading of his word. As we talked about last week, because of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, everything changed. Peter proclaimed to the hearers on the day of Pentecost that the prophecy of Joel was being fulfilled. And as he says in verse 17 that we explored last week, in the last days... It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, verse 20. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not all that Joel prophesied came to pass on the day of Pentecost, nor has it fully come to pass yet. We await the finality, the consummation of this prophecy, and yet it has dawned. The initiation of this has come. This is the age of universal salvation. Now hear me, I do not mean by that that every person on the planet will be saved. But I mean by that that the gospel is for everyone, for all peoples everywhere. This will not just be a Jewish gospel. This will not just be a kingdom for the Israelites. This will be for all peoples everywhere. Through Jesus, God will extend his reign throughout all the earth. And as sin is overcome and worship is restored, the kingdom of God continues to break in. The dawn of a new age, the last days had broken in through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The age of the domination of the Spirit indicating the reign of Jesus was coming and is now still with, with us. And so we still live in this dawn of hope. And as I suggested to you last week, if we were to use the metaphor of a clock, the dawn comes at, let's say, 6 a.m. The light breaks over the eastern horizon. That was Pentecost. The full blaze of the sun, high noon, where we will experience the fullness of Jesus' reign, and he will literally come back and restore all things. We await that. Where are we on that clock today? I have no idea. I can say that we are beyond where the apostles were. That makes sense, right? But what does 2,000 years equal on God's timetable, his redemptive plan? I don't know. I cannot tell you. I won't even pretend to suggest. But the full blaze of the sun's heat and light, the restoration of all things, hope fully present, it's coming. And the truth of the matter is, for us, while we walk this earth for seven, eight, nine decades, most of us, we're recognizing two seemingly different truths that are held in tension. The first is that life seems to be very long. I think you feel that in some ways when you're younger, perhaps, when you're 18, 19, 20, you want to be a grown-up. You want to get past college and get a job and have some money and have a spouse. You're probably not thinking about kids yet at that point, but you want life to move along, and it seems like it's going to drag on forever. And then you turn 30 and 40 and 50, and you look back and you think, how did life move along so quickly? 
And so these two truths are held in tension. In some ways, life seems interminable, like it'll never end. In other ways, life seems like it's a vapor, as the scriptures suggest, and it's gone by so very, very quickly. So while we sojourn along these several decades of our life, the 2,000 years that have gone by since Pentecost and the days or years or decades or perhaps even centuries that will still be before the full blaze of the sun comes in and restores all things. Our lifespan is short. In fact, most days we're not considering the long span of human history. We're just considering our own days. And so that's really what this passage is for. To help us recognize where we live and in whom we hope and how we should experience the reign of Jesus, the kingdom of God that has now broken in. So we, like the apostles, and we, like these first 3,000 converts, have been affected by the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the initiation of the last days. And just like these first believers who experienced the profound effects of all this, we too have experienced these profound effects but not just initially in salvation, we should experience them progressively over time. We upon whom the dawn of hope has broken, we who can see that the darkness has been pierced by the light of Jesus, by the hope of the gospel, the effects upon us have been, should be, and will be profound. And so we will explore those things together today in Acts chapter 2. If you can look back upon your initial salvation, you may remember what transformation took place. Now this may be hard if you were converted at a really young age, and perhaps if your memory was a little bit fuzzy. The initial transformation for a five or six or seven-year-old is often not as dramatic as it might be for one who is converted in their 20s or something like that. For those of you who are converted perhaps a little bit later in life, you may give greater testimony to the initial and amazing transformation that took place. I suppose, based upon my best understanding of my story and my understanding of the gospel, that I was converted at the age of seven. I was almost eight. I was at a campground out in Colorado sitting around a campfire with my parents. I had heard the gospel, I'm sure, thousands of times by that point. And I trusted Jesus through my parents praying with me and leading me once again to Jesus. I think it was August 7th, 1984. For those of you who are older than me, that doesn't seem that long ago. For those of you who are much younger than me, that seems like, like a hist- you know, long ago, like B.C. times. But regardless, it was a while back. Um, I remember things changing after that. But as I got into my teenage years, so six, seven, eight years beyond that, um, things weren't a lot different for me. In fact, I was living pretty horribly. 
I was chasing after all kinds of idols. I wanted to be happy. I was struggling with wanting to be popular at school, with struggling with the wrong friends and the wrong activities. My conscience was consistently pricked, I believe, by the Holy Spirit because I knew I was doing wrong every day in many ways. The age of 16, some of my sin got exposed. My parents found out, which was very shameful. And God used that to bring to light the darkness of my heart. I went away to a summer camp that summer of 1992, I think it was. And um, through a lot of, frankly, legalistic preaching, which wasn't really that good, God used that time to expose my sin even more deeply and my need to follow after Jesus because even though I couldn't quite put my finger on it whenever I was 16, I recognized that I wasn't happy, but I really wanted to be. And in ways that, frankly, were not articulated very well by all that legalistic preaching I heard, I had some notion that there was a happier path, one that would both glorify God and bring me satisfaction. And so transformation happened for me in the summer of 1992. And then things have really never been the same since. I've sinned countless times since then, but I have been essentially on an upward trajectory of following after God ever since. I remember after that that many of the teenagers in my youth group were similarly transformed. I think maybe a dozen of us went out to that summer camp in Colorado. Ironically, which was not that far from the campground that I had been converted at whenever I was the age of seven. God does write all of our stories, does he not? But we came back to Ohio. I lived in Cincinnati, and a dozen or so of us began really transforming, not just throwing sticks and fires at our legalistic teen camp, but really changing. We began to read the Bible together, pray together. We got a good new youth pastor, and he didn't have any kids yet, and so he agreed to meet with us several times a week. So we met on Sunday morning for Sunday school, and Sunday morning worship, and Sunday evening worship, and Tuesday night Bible study, and Wednesday night youth group, and Thursday night evangelistic night. We were together all the time. And then on Fridays and Saturdays, we stopped going to football games, a lot of us, and we would just hang out and eat wings together and talk about Jesus and watch movies and just have fun together. We were together like five, six, seven nights a week. And before too long, the adults in our group, our church, began to notice that we were really changing. And more and more teenagers were changing. And people were being converted to faith in Jesus and being discipled. I remember one night, one Sunday evening service in particular, we had just come off a youth retreat. I think this was the first youth retreat or maybe the second one after uh, that camp experience in the summer of 1992. Uh, we had had a youth retreat, and several kids had come to faith in Jesus at that retreat, and more and more people were being transformed. My dad, who was the lead pastor of our church, had come to that retreat which in some ways was kind of lame because you never wanted your parents where you were doing teen things. Um, I've been teaching youth group the past few weeks for the teenagers here in our church, and 
my son initially thought that was super lame that his dad was going to be there and uh, watch him eat all of his Funyuns and Krispy Kremes and talk about Jesus. But anyway, my dad was there for that retreat, and he saw it. He couldn't, he couldn't escape what was happening. And so I remember that Sunday night, he was supposed to preach. Like, you know, Sunday night services for us growing up were normal preaching services. He sang a lot and had offerings and, you know, preached. It was a, a another Sunday service. But I remember the only time, I remember this from my childhood, he, he didn't preach that night. He was scheduled to, but he decided not to. And unbeknownst to the entire congregation, he began talking about what he had experienced, what he had seen over the weekend at this teen retreat, and how it was transforming our youth group and transforming our church. And I remember he encouraged the entire church to get down on our knees, and we did. It was a big church. And we knelt down in our pews, which are much better than these metal seats, by the way. And uh, we prayed that God would fall fresh through his spirit on the entire church. And, and for years, that church was really mightily affected by God's spirit through what began in the hearts of a few teenagers. I'll never forget that. I have probably not since that season of my life seen quite the transformative and powerful effect on myself as I saw then. It has been more steady. Perhaps some of you can look back at your own story through your conversion or times of recommitment, though I don't really like that word so much, but, but growing in devotion to Jesus. Maybe you had periods of life where, where that was ramped up, and you can look back and have a similar story like me. That's what happened for these early believers. Certainly the 120 that had occupied the upper room, certainly the apostles who had preached, particularly Peter on the day of Pentecost, and certainly these 3,000 believers that were converted on the day of Pentecost. This was a marked day of God's movement among them. And they experienced transformative effects for the entire community. Sometimes, however, for us, as we look back on such periods, which sadly are too few and far between, we look back wistfully, fondly upon those days, wishing they might return. I would say at the outset of our time together today, we, we could say that they could return, and we should pray that they would, that there would be powerful, dramatic, and fresh, clear outworkings of the Spirit in and among us. We can pray for that, and by faith expect it. The truth of the matter is, for most of us, however, each day is not like this. Each, each day is, is more steady. Each day is, I dare say, sort of mundane in some ways. But we need not wait for powerful, clear, dramatic effects of the Spirit to experience these things. In other words, what I'm saying to you is that while we wait for fresh outpourings of the Spirit, revival, you might call it, it does not mean that we can't experience these transformative powerful, special effects of the Spirit upon us and upon our community. In fact, I would argue that because the reign of Jesus is in and among us, because the Spirit is still at work among us, we can 
pursue these things progressively over time and experience them. And while we pray for fresh outpourings of the Spirit and the powerful effects of His work in and among us, we can pursue these things progressively together over time. And so let's think about those things together today. In light of the redemptive reign of Jesus, this is the kingdom of God that's broken in. The last days had come. The apostles said so. And now we still live in those last days. In light of the redemptive reign of Jesus, the dawn of hope that we are still experiencing, first of all, we should always be growing in our knowledge of and devotion to Him. That's the first thing that happened for these 3,000 converts. They were consistently growing in their knowledge of and devotion to Jesus. You see this at the beginning of verse 42. These converts, they devoted themselves progressively, persistently, with all their hearts, to the apostles' teaching, first of all. Which begs the question, what were the apostles teaching? We can answer that in a couple of ways. What scriptures did they have? We answered in the first way. They had the Old Testament. Now, you might say at first glance, how did that help these converts, these first 3,000 converts because the Old Testament wasn't about Jesus. Because the second way in which I would answer this is that they taught about Jesus. In Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, He tells them to observe all that He had commanded them and to teach these things to their followers. But these two things really do go together. The two ways of answering this go together. What did the apostles teach? Well, they taught the Old Testament. What did they teach? They taught about Jesus. Because the Old Testament was about Jesus. So really, it's the same thing. This comes out in the story that Luke records in Luke chapter 24. After Jesus' resurrection though not everybody knew about it, most didn't. He appears to two disciples on the road to a little town called Emmaus. They are sad. He appears to them as a stranger. He veils his true identity from them. And he asks them what they're talking about, and they say, don't you know what's happened? Everybody around here knows this. Jesus, who we hoped would be the Messiah, was crucified and was buried. Some say... Perhaps he has risen. And then Luke says that Jesus began with Moses, the beginning of the Old Testament, first five books of the Old Testament that Moses wrote. Beginning with Moses, Jesus taught them all the things in the Old Testament concerning him. That is to say, he was the skeleton key that unlocked the whole thing. Though by and large, these were poor uneducated men from northern Israel, from Galilee, with no great pedigree, with no great training, rough a bit, Jesus chose them. But even so, they would have been taught well as Israelites. The Old Testament, from their parents, from the synagogue, 
to teach them about the work of God, their covenant God who had made Israel his own, had made them his special people. And that throughout their history and intervals, he had rescued them and they had followed him and then they had fallen again and he punished them and he'd rescue them again and bring them back to himself and for maybe a generation they would follow him and then they would fall away again and he'd punish them and bring them back and this endless cycle seemingly of grace and rebellion and, and restoration and repentance and over and over again you see this cycle. These people like Peter and James and John had learned about this. They had learned all the responsibilities that rested upon them. They had felt their own sin. When they read about the the lying, the deceit of men like Jacob, they, they had their own deceit exposed. When they read about the lust of a man like David, they, they had their own lust exposed. And they knew they shouldn't be greedy. They knew they shouldn't lie. They knew they shouldn't lust. But they, like their forefathers, didn't really see a way out. There were lots of laws that rested upon them, but they had no real comprehension of how to get out of it. There were a few, sure, who had trusted God like Abraham and had been justified by faith, but by and large, Israel had not been marked by a multitude of people following God with new hearts. And Jesus comes along, and he chooses some men to follow him. But by and large, even those who followed him didn't really persist, didn't persist in faith. It was not going to be because of their resolve, because of their conviction that they would be devoted to their covenant God. It was going to take the death of the Son of God to atone for their sins and then to rise in power, to conquer sin and death, to put His Spirit in them, to transform them. Then He comes along and teaches them that all the longings of the Old Testament, longings for transformation, for reconciliation to God, for a consistent trajectory of worship, He was the answer to all of that. He was the promised Redeemer who would crush the serpent. He was the seed of Abraham who would bring salvation to God's covenant people. He was the sacrificial lamb that would appease the wrath of God. He was the fragrant sacrifice that God was pleased with. He was the king who would rule over his people in perfect righteousness. He was the prophet who could speak the words of God to his people. He was the Messiah. He was the hope of Israel. He was the hope of the world. And as the disciples on the way to Emmaus heard all of this unfold and and saw this unfolded to them, Jesus showed them and eventually exposed himself to be Jesus to them. That everything had changed. And even these scriptures that they had had with them for so long, they finally came to life for these people. So, So what were the apostles teaching? They were teaching the Old Testament finally unlocked. Finally, these Israelites had had lenses through which they could look at the Scripture and see it truly and freshly for the first time. That all of it had been about God saving His people through His Son, Jesus. That was the story of the Old Testament, that God would keep His promises and save His people 
through his son, Jesus. And these converts couldn't get enough of it. They devoted themselves to it. They, like these early apostles, saw it for the first time. And it changed everything about them. What implications should this have for us today? We should always be growing in our knowledge of and devotion to Jesus. That's what happened for these apostles. It's what happened for these early converts. What must it have been like for Peter and James and John to have a little Bible study together? Then open up the book of Exodus and read about the Passover and think about the blood of the lamb that was spread on the doorposts of the home that averted for the Israelites the wrath of God and see in that a picture of the coming Messiah who John said was the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Think about how many aha moments, not the 80s band, how many aha moments these apostles had as they explored the Old Testament. It had to have happened for them all the time. Perhaps they even fought over opportunities to teach the crowd. Look at what we discovered. I want to tell them what God's Spirit is showing me, how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies, these contours of the Old Testament. This is amazing. And they couldn't get enough of it. The truth of the matter is, for us, we often get really bored with God's Word. That is probably in part the fault of those who teach it, people like me. In other ways, it's the fault of those who hear it, all of us. We take for granted these promises, these, these grand promises, that there is one true God who spoke all things into existence, who created image bearers to fellowship with him, knowing full well they would fall into rebellion, and made a prehistoric covenant before the foundation of the world with his Son through the Spirit to restore some of these image bearers to themselves, that they might know him and enjoy him forever. These grand thoughts. And Jesus is the one who unlocks all of that, who makes it all possible. There's some idolatry exposed or suggested by what's going on here. What do I mean? Well, the truth of the matter is, we want to believe that we can save ourselves. It's part of, it's part of our nature. We are self-righteous to the core. Furthermore, we always want to experience new and better things to make us happy because we get bored with the old ways. You know what it's like whenever you're a kid and you get a new toy at Christmas that you just had to have? By the second week in January, you put it down and maybe you find it in May and you think, wait a minute, I haven't played with this in four months. It really wasn't that big a deal to begin with. As adults, we experience this when we get excited about a new car, but after a couple of weeks, forget it. It's just transportation or a new house or a new meal or whatever the case may be. 
temporary things, though they may be good, cannot satisfy us. What was happening here in the early church? Their self-righteousness needed to be pushed back against. What's the only thing that can push back against the self-righteousness of humanity? It's the gospel, what the apostles were teaching. What's the only thing that can deeply satisfy us in ways that money and possessions and people cannot? It's God. What happened for these early thousands of converts? Their self-righteousness was continually being exposed and their tendency towards seeking pleasure in other things was being exposed. And guess what? They were happy because of it. And you see, brothers and sisters, this is why we teach all the time on Sunday morning in our small groups and discipleship. And you should be doing this in your homes and on personal worship with God. You are coming to God's Word, whether on your own or whether this morning or in some other setting. You're coming to God's Word and you're saying, I've got problems. I've got a self-righteousness problem and I've got a satisfaction problem. And the only thing that I can do to fight against this is to come back to the Word of God. God reveals Himself in nature. We, we call this, in theological terms, general revelation. God shows His power and His beauty and His wisdom and design through creation, in other words. But God in His great mercy has spoken to us through His special revelation, His Word. That's why Moses and others wrote it down. Later, the apostles wrote it down. God speaks to us. And as He exposes things like self-righteousness and our satisfaction problem, He's not doing this because He's mean or malevolent. He's doing this because He loves us. So I say to you, and to my own heart, may we be ever committed to the Word of God coming to it in faith and humility, believing that it is a gift from Him. Yes, to push back against our idolatry, but even more so to satisfy us with Himself. That was what characterized this early church. They were growing in their knowledge of and devotion to Jesus, and so must we ever be. In light of the redemptive reign of Jesus, secondly, we should be committed to one another in love and generosity. Notice the second thing. They devoted themselves not only to the apostles' teaching, but to fellowship. You see at the end of verse 44 that they had all things in common. And they sold much of what they had and shared it equally or with those who had need. And seemingly every day they went into the environs, the precincts of the temple and heard teaching, and then broke up into the first small groups and went into each other's homes and ate together with gladness and generosity and worshiped together. And then more and more people kept coming. These people were committed to one another in love and generosity. The Word of God, taught by, preached by the apostles, pushed back against the people's tendency toward self-righteousness and, and exposed their satisfaction problem, their idolatry problem. There is suggested in this 
newness of community another idolatry problem. And that is that we are independent beings. And yet we're lonely. We have a tendency to, is- to isolate ourselves. Why do we do that? Well, partially because we like to hide from each other. We have this nagging notion that if people really knew us for who we really are, they wouldn't like us very much. Or perhaps out of pride we think we're better than others. But the isolation just makes us lonely. This was one of the effects of the fall. There are implications in what God says to Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall that not only would their relationship with him vertically be changed, so would their relationship with one another horizontally. Eve would struggle with Adam and Adam with Eve. Their kids would fight, not just wrestle and punch. One would kill the other, as you see in Genesis chapter 4. And isn't the rest of human history a story of how humanity fights? Humanity has always fought. We're fighting in our country now over things like skin color, religion, perspectives on social issues. Our churches fight. We fight over sin that has gone unconfessed and unrepented of, disappointing friendships, frustrations with leadership, theological hobby horses upon which we focus too much attention. And Satan, who is full of craft and hate, uses these tendencies in our hearts to divide us. And then we think we don't need each other, and perhaps we would be better without each other, and then we lose our devotion toward one another. It's easy to begin well, it's hard to stay committed toward one another. But, but the idolatry of individuality, the idolatry of self-love, which frankly never leads to satisfaction, it leads to, to more and more disappointment. It can't satisfy us. What was one of the effects of the redemptive reign of Jesus breaking in this dawn of hope? The community was transformed. They loved each other. And they were generous toward one another. Jesus is reversing the effects of the curse. That's what's happening here. He had restored them to God, and now he was restoring them toward one another. The vertical and the horizontal effects of the curse between God and man and between man and man, woman and woman, husband and wife, parent and child, friend and friend, countrymen and countrymen, image bearer and image bearer. It was being undone. And they just wanted to be together. Now what does this hold out for us? It's probably a good time for me to say that as we work through the book of Acts, we have to approach it suggestively and not necessarily normatively. That probably just flew over a lot of people's heads. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. I don't think what this means is that we have to build a replica of the temple somewhere in Lewis Center. And every day at like 
3 p.m., we create some sort of American siesta, and we show up together and hear a 45-minute exposition on how the Old Testament points to Jesus, and then we go to each other's homes and have a meal together, often accompanied by communion and prayer, and sing and give to the poor and make sure nobody has any needs. That would be a literal normative approach to this passage. That's not what this is calling us to. This is recording what God did and how his people were affected by it. But there are principles here. There are suggestions here. What might this look like in our normal experience? As Mark prayed earlier, that we would be together with some measure of regularity. Now, for most of us, probably not every day. That is not realistic. But at least once a week, it's being now said by those who track such things that regular attendance to Sunday morning worship is down to a couple of weeks a month. I'm not here to beat any of you up. Those of you who have been going to our church for a long time know that, if anything, I, I under-talk these things. I'm not here to to make you feel guilty, but I am saying that your love for God and toward one another will be affected by how often you are together. So be together. Try to be here on Sunday. To hear apostolic preaching. I'm not an apostle, but I'm telling you what they say. To be with each other. Try to be involved in a small group. Try to be involved in a men's or women's Bible study. Try to be involved in some kind of discipleship. Choose what you can, but, but don't allow life to just happen to you. This is one of the great problems of the American lifestyle, is we let life happen to us. And we wake up months or years later, and we have regrets. We're not happier. We're not more satisfied. We might have more money. Our kids might be better at sports, they might have better scholarships, but our devotion to God and to His people has not increased. And I dare say that we might look back upon such decades of life and say that we wasted them. Present company included. So brothers and sisters, let's not let just life, life just happen to us. Let's, let's push back against it. Because of the idolatry of self, which never leads to satisfaction, let us devote ourselves toward one another, and and let us give to each other. I don't think that we draw from this passage, or should not draw from this passage, that we have to sell everything we have and live in a commune. That's creepy and weird. But it shouldn't be that there's a needy person among us. And I want to encourage you that by and large over the 11 years this church has existed, that this has basically been the case. For the most part, as I reflect upon the past 11 years of our life together as a church, you have not let people go without. This is an indication that you have had the dawn of hope exposed into your heart. You believe this. But let it ever be so. Let it ever be that we are paying sensitive attention to those around us. Now, Does this mean that everybody will always have all the same things? No. There's going to be wealthy people among us. There's going to be people with less among us. That's the way it will be. But it should be that those with more should take care of those with less. 
And we should do so gladly and generously. And what we will see together in just a few moments before we close is, is such love characterized by generosity has a transformative effect on a community. People see it. And it's so different from how they live because they're living to gain. They're living to fill up their Scrooge McDuck temples of money laundering and so forth that, that they don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to them. So I say to you, take stock. And I mean seriously, take stock. Praying in the Spirit, how am I doing sharing my life with other people? Am I hoarding my time? Am I hoarding my possessions so that I can't be with other people and I can't give to other people? You are not only diminishing the joy of those to whom you should be giving yourself to, but you're diminishing your own. We were not meant to live in isolation. Now, I admit this can get a little scary. When you, when you live in this kind of proximity to people, they're going to see things about you that you don't want to be seen. They're going to know things about you that you don't want to be known. But this is why we teach. We teach the gospel so that when such things happen, we cover one another with the grace of Jesus. So may we grow in commitment to one another and love and generosity. This is one of the clear effects of the early transformed church, and progressively it should be for us. We, we must pursue this deliberately by faith. Thirdly, in light of the redemptive reign of Jesus, we should follow and depend on the Lord together. You notice that they broke bread together and they prayed together. Some have suggested that this means communion, the Lord's table, that they did this every day. This is a more general term than that. What this probably means is they ate together a lot. Now, to be sure, in the early church, when they took communion, they had a meal together. Greg Adams, one of our elders, is constantly encouraging the elders to do this more regularly, to occasionally at least, maybe once a quarter, have communion that is accompanied by a meal. Paul suggests that this is what the early church did in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that they ate together and then partook of communion together. So sometimes they went together, but sometimes they didn't. The idea here is they fellowshiped together. And notice they prayed together. There's a definite article in front of the word prayers, the prayers. This means that some of their prayers are probably set for them like the Psalms or the Lord's Prayer. I suggest to you, if you'd get distracted in prayer, use the Bible to help you pray. The prayers. There are great prayer books out there you can use to help you pray. I can suggest some of those to you if you'd like. The idea is they didn't just get together and have a meal, but often their meal was accompanied by communion together. And often it was accompanied by, by prayers. And notice in verse 47, when they were together, they praised God. This means that their fellowship was deliberate. 
Now, this doesn't mean that when you have somebody over to your home on a Saturday evening that you have to have like a devotional time. It doesn't mean you can't, though. The idea is that they were together pursuing God. Again, suggestive for us. We may not do it exactly like they did it. Probably not every day. But we probably could stand to be together more. We probably could stand to pursue hospitality more. Use the church directory, now consolidated into an app for you. And by the way, if you're not on the app, I encourage you to do so. Work through it. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Invite them over. Grab a meal impromptu with them after today's service. Talk about things that don't matter. The weather doesn't matter, really. The Buckeyes don't matter, really. Jesus matters. So talk about things that don't matter, and then talk about things that do. Sins you're struggling with. You want to help people learn to be humble and transparent? Confess your own. Ask for prayer. When the inevitable question comes up after today's service, how are you doing or how was the week? Don't just give the blithe, easy answer. Tell people the truth. If it was fantastic, tell them that. If it was awful, tell them that. If your brother or sister's week was fantastic, pray together and thank God that it was so. If your brother or sister's week was awful, pray together and ask that God would heal and give hope. You see, these people, as Mark prayed earlier, believed that the pursuit of Christ, the process of sanctification or growth in holiness, a life of worship, was not an individualistic thing. Young people, this is why we have a youth group. Our youth group isn't demanded somewhere in the Bible. We're trying to teach you early on, whenever you begin making worship decisions, value decisions, that you need each other. That was critically important for me when I was a young person and has made it now as an adult where I believe that with all my heart. I learned that as a 15 and 16-year-old when my process of sanctification really ramped up, as I described to you earlier. I needed my friends. Same is true today. You don't outgrow that when you're 30 or 40. You need each other. So be together. And when you're together, at least part of that time together, be deliberate and encouraging one another, as Mark read to us earlier from Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. All of us must be aware of this. How do we fight this? Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Or Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. These aren't legalistic principles. These aren't the demands of tyrannical elders. These are the implications of the transformation of Jesus, the dawn of hope. 
that we should be growing collectively in our knowledge of and devotion to Jesus, that we should be committed toward one another in love and generosity, and that we should be together helping one another pursue God. And how will this affect us and others? Well, we should draw others to Jesus in word and deed. What happened through the effects of these things upon these disciples? Well, verse 47, they praised God and as a result, they had favor with all the people. Jerusalem saw. And what happened? Some of them, a number of them were being saved every single day. They saw these people growing in their knowledge and devotion to Jesus. They saw them loving one another generously. They saw them spending time together and pursuing Jesus. And this had a profound effect on their environment, which then gave them opportunity to speak the gospel, to speak of the crucified and risen Lord to these people. Therefore, the effects of transformation in us give us opportunities to speak the gospel to people. The evidences of this dawn of new hope, the reign of Jesus, the kingdom of God breaking in in our lives should have profound impact on our environment. So I ask you once again to take stock suggested to you earlier in our liturgy that one of the signs of maturity in Christ is that we will be consistently considering our sin and repenting of it, coming to Jesus who constantly and faithfully forgives. Are our lives having a salt-like, a light-like effect on our community? Then we must repent and go back to these effects that should be showing up in us. Are we growing in our knowledge of and devotion to Jesus Are we committed toward one another in love and generosity? Are we following after Christ together? I ask you to consider how you're doing. This doesn't make God love you. God loves you because of His Son. The promises of the gospel are not something that you can earn. But the promises of the gospel should, out of gratitude, transform us and and therefore should have an impact on the world around us. So, I suggest that we should all be considering how we are being transformed, how we are pursuing together devotion to Jesus. God may not send revival among us in some profound way, but we can pursue these things steadily. And in doing so, may He grant us joy together in Him, and may He bring many more in to find their joy in Him as well.